This is High Motor by Bet MGM, Andrew Dowdy and Chase Kitty with only four weeks. We're talking here on Sunday, Valentine's Day. It's only four weeks until Selection Sunday. So we're going to divert from football, from college football, from the NFL into college basketball this week and probably several more times over the next four weeks and then the month of the tournament through the final four. We'll still have a lot of football over the next four to eight weeks, NFL and college. We'll still have a lot of draft. We'll mix in some betting stuff there, but more college basketball than usual, especially lately. We've only touched on college basketball a couple of times over the season thus far on High Motor by BetMGM. This is your lane. I mean, I love college hoops. I love college basketball. But this is really your lane. So, I mean, you're all stretched out and ready to go, I presume. There are people that will tell you, like, oh, you know, college basketball is a three-week sport. Uh, I mean, maybe that's true for some people. But, like, November 9th, I'm locked into college basketball. I, it's just it's a family thing. I'm all in. Let's start today with the selection committee's rankings that dropped on Saturday. For this, I think a few conversations we can have, and we probably will have. Number one, not necessarily staying with those 16 teams, but generally with those 16 teams and then beyond. Who's undervalued? Who's overvalued? Not just in these rankings again, but but also beyond those 16 teams. Where can you find some opportunity to keep an eye on these teams when you're going into March Madness? Which teams do you think could pull the upset which teams do you think could have favorable seating? Who's flying under the radar? Who can you jump on leading up to the tournament? Number two, what did we learn from the committee's rankings? And we still have four weeks to go. A, a lot of huge games. Obviously, things move quite a bit with uh, conference tournaments when you have so many Q1 wins, so many high-end wins that can shift around the field, especially when some of those mid-major conferences have been sitting idle for a week or 10 days. What did we learn from these rankings, though, four weeks before Selection Sunday. And number three, the absence of Blue Bloods. This is something that's been talked about quite a bit this entire season. I don't have any interest in having the who are college basketball's true Blue Bloods. I think we've had that conversation probably on air, probably off air. Yawn. It's it's written about every single year. I just don't care. Like, I, If you want to call Villanova a Blue Blood, I, I, don't, I don't even have an opinion there. I, I just don't care about that argument. I think there are very clear Blue Bloods in Kansas and, and Kentucky and Duke, North Carolina. I mean, if you want to take out or put UCLA, Indiana in there, I, I truly don't care. I, I do care this year is that, with the exception of if you want to put Villanova in there, the Blue Bloods are not there this year. I mean, Kansas is just outside the top 16. I can't imagine they're that far outside of it. They were 18th in my bracketology rankings last Thursday and they definitely wouldn't have dropped since then. But no Kentucky, no Duke, no uh, no North Carolina. Like If you want to talk Michigan State, sure, none of them, several of them in jeopardy of missing the tournament, maybe all of them excluding Kansas. So the absence of Blue Bloods, I think you mentioned earlier, what uh, the destruction of Blue Bloods, I think is the word you used. 
So where do, where do you want to start here? Overvalued, undervalued, what did we learn, Blue Bloods? Where do you want to kick off this show? I am kind of fascinated by the Blue Blood thing, and, and I generally agree with you. I, I did get into it with my sister a little bit right at the beginning of the season, right before UVA lost to San Francisco, because there is there's sort of this growing PR campaign that emanates out of Charlottesville that you know UVA is a is a college basketball blue blood, and I was like, hey, pump the brakes on that. Like, it, it's cool that you guys won a national championship. Do you know what it feels like? Honestly, it feels like I don't know if Northwestern is still doing this, but they'll say like Chicago's Big Ten team or Syracuse will do New York's basketball team. Like, I get that this is some marketing idea you guys drummed up, and you probably poured way too much money into it, but. Ultimately, who cares? It's like when the G5 sends out their power six emails, like their power six points. I mean, like A for effort and creativity and do what you got to do. But what is that really doing? Like, who are you convincing? Who is Fox News convincing when they show something on TV? I think it's the same deal here. Like, what does it matter if Virginia is a blue blood or not? There's no official blue blood committee out there. Who cares? Yeah, so I, I, I share your opinion that like I don't really care that much, but I am interested in this idea that almost every single team that's traditionally good is not good this year. And in some cases, it's not like they're normally they're great, they're top ten, and this year they're top forty. We're talking about like Duke was under five hundred last week, you know, like like bad. So I am interested. Normally it's like this year, Indiana's not very good. This year, you know, Michigan State's having a down year. No, it's Duke, North Carolina. Uh, Kansas is kind of not really, they're half on this list, but they're, I mean, they don't suck. Uh, you know, Louisville, out of the top 25. Indiana, no. Arizona, no. UCLA, finally cracked it last week. They're going to fall right back out because they lost to Washington State. UConn, no. Kentucky, no. I, I mean, I'm interested in this idea that they are all bad at the same time. It kind of, I mean, there have been various stats throughout the year about it's the first time since 1955 that like these three teams aren't in the AP top 25 in the same week. So in some ways it has virtually no historical precedent, certainly not in modern college basketball and in a way not in like all of college basketball history. So I'm interested, is that, do you think, is it pandemic-related or is it pure chance? Because some of these things you could kind of see coming. Duke has been sort of dropping off very slowly, kind of very steadily over the last four or five years, essentially since that Grayson Allen team that won the national championship. Uh, But others, I mean, North Carolina, pretty recent troubles. Michigan State... I mean, Louisville has been pretty consistent. Uh, I mean, I, I, I understand that, you know, since Patino's been gone, you know, it's been a little different there. It's It just feels like a lot of things are happening at once. And on the whole, I'm very into it. I like new teams rising to the top. I don't necessarily always like the same five teams being good in both college football and college basketball. So I like sitting down to watch, you know, we were just talking right before we started recording. Uh, Drake and and Loyola were finishing up. I like when Drake Loyola is an interesting game that gets some national attention. That's awesome for me. So I like this, but I am curious why you think it's happening or if it's totally random. To spoil the entire conversation, I don't know 
why it's happening. And and quite frankly, I don't think you know either. I don't think no. anybody if anybody thinks they know why this is happening, they're they're lying to you. The I'm going to pitch it right back to you and say because when we talk about something like this, as we do in all college sports, at least from my perspective, it comes down to the coaches and. For these teams, like specifically, the, you know, the big ones up top, I don't really want to talk about like Louisville or Indiana, UCLA, UConn that much. Like I've never been a big these teams specifically talking about like KU. Let's just do KU, Kentucky, North Carolina, Duke to to kind of simplify this. I've never been a big guy who says these four teams are coached by the best coaches in college basketball. Now, I don't think that Bill Self or John Calipari or Roy Williams or Coach K are bad coaches. I just don't know if those are the top four coaches in college basketball. I don't know if any of those four coaches are among the two, three, or four coaches, best coaches in college basketball right now because I think that a lot of coaches could do what they do with those resources. I think Chris Beard could do extremely well at Kansas or extremely well at North Carolina. I mean, Mark Few and Tony Bennett go down the list a little bit of all these really good coaches that – I think it probably do well with those recruits. I don't see any worrying trend for any of Duke, North Carolina, Kentucky. I don't like Coach K. I have a lot of problems with Coach K. Frankly, I think he's a dick, and he's been a dick for a long time, and and I have a problem with how he acts and his hypocrisy and all that kind of stuff. But he's still getting talent. I mean, Duke is – like, they haven't been bad. Like, let's start over. With Kansas, because they haven't been bad in forever. So, like, kind of starting at the very top, Kansas hasn't been bad forever. Like, truly bad, missed the tournament bad for, like, 30 years. Then I think you drop down to Duke about the same. I mean, a lot of underachieving teams for Duke, but not, like, I guess for Kansas, too, but never, like, truly bad. Never this bad. I mean, Kentucky and North Carolina are then the step below. Like, they've had some of their lumps. For Kentucky, I think it's just going to happen. I think when you have that many freshmen... That much roster turnover, it's just going to happen. I don't know if we're ever going to see a team like it was 2012 with Kid Gilchrist and Teague and and Davis and all of those guys. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that was extremely rare in college basketball, have that many good freshmen playing that well together and being that dominant. We we almost saw it with Kentucky a couple years later. For Kentucky, it's just going to happen. For North Carolina, I think that the blue blood, how you asked it to me, that conversation kind of starts with North Carolina because that's my most worry. They were really bad a decade ago. They had that really bad 09-10 year, I believe. Yeah, like after Hansborough? Yeah, I think it was 2009-2010. That's the year they lost to Charleston, I want to say. I mean, they, they were basically horrible last year. They were truly bad last year. They're average this year. They'll probably make the tournament. They were a 10 or 11 seed in my bracketology. And then in between, they kind of had this mediocre run that we haven't seen from those other Blue Bloods, and we really haven't seen from Blue Bloods much over the last 20 years. That's why for North Carolina, I don't know if the conversation kind of starts there and we say, okay, what is wrong here? Because North Carolina is still getting the recruits. I mean, they still have the money. They still have the resources. I don't know if it's a Roy Williams problem. So I kind of, I mean, I know that I talked for like two minutes after I said I was going to ditch it right back to you, but does it go to coaches for you? Because for me, it's like 98% coaches, and I'm not in the weeds. Like, I'm not Jeff Goodman or Jeff Borzello. I'm not talking to Roy Williams. I'm not talking to other coaches about Roy Williams and if he's still a great coach and if he's still a great schematic coach and all that stuff. So I, I don't think that I'm in a position to say 10,000 feet above what Roy Williams is doing, but still, it's got to be so much coaching when they have that much power in the sport and when you have that much talent on this team and you're playing that poorly. 
I think the conversation has to start there, and it might have to start with North Carolina specifically. Yeah, I think the ACC was was considered, you know, one of the premier conferences for such a long time because it had this this soul of Roy Williams Carolina teams, K's Duke teams, Bayheim Syracuse teams. Like you had this sort of indomitable, hyper consistent core, and then you could add in a really good Florida State team, a really good UVA team. Uh, I don't know, like a good Pitt team. I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. Uh, like a, a good, you know, before Maryland went to the Big Ten, you had, you know, maybe a good Maryland team. Like you could add in these these teams that were fairly consistent or maybe just jumped up and had a good year. And all of a sudden you've got eight or nine really strong teams going to the, the NCAA tournament and the ACC is great every year. When you start to hollow out that middle, when you start to say, uh, consider the inevitable, the inevitability of, hey, at some point, Bayheim and Kay and Roy Williams, like they're all going to be maybe a little bit too old for this. Like the the, the game is going to change. Is going to you know, there's going to be and, and you've seen Kay try to to move with those changes. He has he has completely changed his recruiting philosophies over the last ten or so years, where he has tried to be a little bit more like Calipari, and sometimes it's worked. And sometimes it hasn't. And this year, I think, is one of those examples where it really has not worked well at all. Uh, so when you start to get away from those hyper-consistent programs and consider the fact that at some point those programs are going to regress and those coaches are going to retire, I think that's sort of what you're seeing because so much of this Blue Blood conversation starts with the ACC as you have identified with Carolina. Uh, and I wonder if that's kind of where it starts and then some of the other stuff is just sort of uh, of random, like the Arizona. You know, I wonder if Arizona and Kansas are maybe having some sort of difficulty because of you know rumors around what's going on with with NCAA stuff. That's totally random. I mean, it could be have nothing to do with that. But I wonder if if any of that has stuff to do with it. Indiana just hasn't been you know super consistent in, in you know the last one or two decades. Um, they had a couple good teams under Tom Crean, but I mean. Eh. Uh, Michigan State, you know, they've been more hit or miss the last decade than, than, you know, maybe the 2000 to 2010 period under Izzo. Syracuse hasn't been like really, even that year they went to the Final Four recently, they weren't like some great team November to March. They they got hot at the right time. So I, I think some of it is, as you have identified, coaching, other bits of it, probably more chance. It just seems like there are way too many variables. Like we don't know, like you said, if the FBI, I'm sure it took its toll on Kansas and Arizona and, and elsewhere. I'm sure that absolutely happened. I, I, I'm certain that it probably cost KU some recruits. Maybe when they call the coach that they used to call in high school, maybe he didn't really want to deal with that at the time because there are so many questions. There are still a lot of questions. Like I have no doubt in my mind that that took a toll, and it probably takes away from maybe some scouting, game planning, recruiting, all that kind of stuff with Bill Self and his staff and Sean Miller and all that. I just think there are too many variables here because, I mean, you're talking about a sport that is rapidly expanding, and yes, like Mary Mack adding a Division One basketball program has nothing to do with North Carolina basketball, but the sport has so dramatically shifted how it's built up. I mean, it, it doesn't have minor leagues, but it kind of does with AAU basketball and those relationships, and I get that programs don't have rights to kids at some high school programs and at some AAU programs, but... Like, they kind of unofficially do. I mean, that's why relationships relationships with those AAU coaches, 
with those systems with high school coaches matter. I mean, that's how Penny Hardaway is getting these players. I mean, talk about a program that's wildly underachieving. I, I just, I have a hard time. I'm not ready to press the panic button yet. I'm not even panicking about anything. I think it's disconcerting that Kansas is this bad, and I, I have serious questions about them moving forward. But I'm not ready to press the panic button and say that this is an epidemic. This is, we're trending down some sort of path where blue bloods are going to struggle. If these teams do it again next year, like if Duke does this again next year, okay, let's have a different conversation. But I still think we're really far away from that. And I think even once we were to get to that, I mean, how many more years is Roy Williams going to be at North Carolina? How many more years is Coach K going to be at Duke? Are they going to be at their respective schools more than two or three more seasons? And then you completely change everything, the landscape on not only those two programs, but in the ACC and across college basketball, two programs that have routinely won 30 games, have routinely been one or two seeds. And when you, like, I'm not saying a new coach couldn't come in there and do that, but probably for the time being, as you transition, you're essentially wiping those teams, not out of college basketball, but out of that one or two seed argument. So I I just think there's too much here. I mean, this is like, this feels like something you write a 300 page book about and you really dissect why different recruits are going to certain programs what has maybe changed? How has Coach K adapted his coaching philosophy to the point where I'm certain I'm not qualified to say why these teams are doing this? But I agree with you. It's fascinating. I'm at the point right now, I think, where I'm just going to chalk it up to just dumb luck, to timing, because I don't see any other overriding factor where I can certainly say that this is why it is happening. Yeah, and I think the other half of this that I'm interested in is when you look at those top 16 seeds they got released this last week, why are these programs good? Like what, if anything, if there's anything identifiable about it, what makes them good this year when so many Blue Bloods that that have more momentum generally, more resources, why is Ohio State good this year? Is it just because they had, you know, they just popped up and had a great year this year? Okay, maybe, but... When you look at other programs like Michigan or like Illinois or Rick Barnes' Tennessee squads now, uh, like these, these are programs that have been consistently top 20-esque, top 15-esque. Uh, obviously, you've got Virginia there who just you know recently won a national championship. Texas Tech under Chris Beard has become very consistent. Uh, what is it about these programs that has enabled them to continue to be good even in the face of a dramatically increased hardship because you know it's not just the resources. It's something about the consistency in the program culture. And again, uh, probably too much to have a fully fleshed out discussion about. But this is something I constantly think about going through the season is why are these teams good? Let's shift gears to those rankings what we learned from the committee's rankings on Saturday and as soon as those rankings came out I hopped on Twitter because I wanted to give some thoughts I wasn't going to write up an article and we still had uh, what a day and a half until this podcast so I just wanted to see kind of my stream of consciousness reactions to this and I, th- I think I put together what I actually thought and a day later I, I I think that's still holds true and those were the takeaways from that but this is really hard like this this is not the college football playoff. I mean, this is extremely hard to draw a conclusion. With the college football playoff, even though, as we've said so many times, the committee chair doesn't come out and they don't they don't tell us dick, we can generally tell what they're thinking based on their rankings because 
it's really easy. You're playing for four spots, and then realistically, there are only you know six to eight teams that are in that picture, and we can see pretty clearly where they draw the line. This year was a little bit different with the number of games being played and how they evaluated Ohio State and all that, but generally, it's a lot easier to draw conclusions how they're formatting their rankings. In college basketball, it's, it's not really that case. I mean, we can sit here and say, hey, they like Gonzaga. Yeah, obviously they do. Hey, they like teams who beat good teams, other teams in their top 16. Yeah, obviously they do. I think they did a good job. I don't think there were any egregious errors, any egregious omissions. Do you think so? Because I don't I don't see anywhere. I had a couple teams that were a little bit off. I think I had Texas Tech maybe three spots off. But generally, I think with like 14 of the 16 teams, Compared to my rankings when I do it for Bracketology, 14 of the 16 teams were either in the right spot or one spot off, and I'm not going to get into a team being one spot off or even three spots off. Because when you're measuring this many metrics, and you're talking about multiple dozens metrics and then going into quadrant records and net rankings and all that kind of stuff, two road record, neutral record, I'm not really going to pick bones about somebody being two or three spots off. I don't see any egregious errors here. Did you, th- did you see anything? No, nothing egregious. I, I thought... I thought Iowa was getting a lot of respect for what their personnel was and what their potential was. Uh, and I was a little like, I mean, Missouri there at, at 16, it's like right on the cusp of not being ranked as a four. So, I mean, take obviously you're one spot away from not being ranked at this top 16 list. But I, I thought Missouri was maybe a little bit of a eh, interesting. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is roughly, I thought, accurate. And we also don't know, as we've talked so many times, picking arbitrary number. I mean, like, where does 16 come from? I mean, this isn't as bad as the AP Top 25, where they literally just pulled Top 25 out of their ass, even though they were doing that when there are only 75, 80 teams in college football. And now we have 130. And I get they're not going to do the full bracket right now, but who's 17? Who's 18? What's the gap between, I mean, I think Texas was at, you know, excuse me, Missouri was at 16. Texas was at, where were they at? 15, yeah. What's the gap between Missouri at 16 and who's 17? And what's the gap between Texas at 15 and whoever's 17? We don't get to see that. It seems like my takeaway is that the committee is willing to ignore or at least generally be okay with some metrics that are, I also tweeted this, like from Missouri was a good example. They have a lot of metrics that aren't great. And they have some metrics that are more typical of a five, six, seven seed and not a low end four. And I get that they're right on the cusp of being a five, but it seems like the committee is okay with metrics that are, you know, 15, 16 spots down, if not more from where you're ranked. So what I mean by that is Missouri was 16. Most of their rankings, net, Ken Palm, KPI, BPI, those are all generally between, you know, 32, 35, 40, 42. So it seems like they're okay with those Metrics that are a lot farther down if you have some high-end wins like a Missouri. Kind of the same note for an Ohio State. Same deal there. I mean, they like Ohio State's high-end wins more than their metric profile, which is more typical of a two or three seed. They have a lot of metrics that are sitting at seven, eight, nine, ten. Ohio State's not in the top three, top four, top five of many metrics. Uh, One note here is that I was glad they came out and said this. I assume they would. We assume that they'd only consider the games that were actually played. I mean, I would have been surprised if they came out and said that they were projecting who might have won a game because it wasn't played. So I I think we should trust that they're telling the truth there. So all these games that every team has has lost or been postponed or canceled, I mean, just even looking at the Big 12, as we're both fully aware of, I mean, they're not saying Baylor would have beat 
whatever team that they had canceled, all of these Big 12 teams, and extended that strength of schedule metrics over Gonzaga, maybe had the overall one over Gonzaga as Gonzaga played a bunch of uh, WCC teams. So I think it was nice that they at least came out and said that so we had a baseline understanding of they're not just assuming Baylor would have would have beat these teams. Uh, any other takeaways there that you were at least satisfied with, not necessarily with the interview, but because, it, I mean, it seems like you agree with me that it wasn't egregious. Therefore, you're not questioning what they're actually doing or wondering how they're building this bracket. Yeah, I mean, overall, sensible, reasonable, uh, would have made a couple of different decisions personally, but yeah, it's fine. All right, where are we going today? Uh, college basketball. Uh, lots of Monday games in the Big 12, and I have bet them before. We have hit them before on this podcast. We have gotten winners uh, out, out of it on this podcast. And we are going back to the Big 12 for Big Monday. 9 p.m., Fort Worth, Texas Tech travels to TCU. Uh, Texas Tech is obviously a good program under Chris Beard, yada, yada, yada. TCU, uh, you know, they haven't been bad. Uh, they, they've put some teams into the NCAA tournament. But it's just the reality of being one of the – you're a lot closer to the bottom if you're TCU to the Big 12 uh, because it's just a stacked conference every year. And that's the reality. So they oftentimes have a conference record that is not emblematic of being a decent team. That is, again, the case this year where I believe right now they're 4-6 and six in conference play. They are hosting Texas Tech, and they are getting a nice, nice squishy number – uh, they are a, depending on uh, you know where you look, it's still kind of early on here. We're recording this Sunday night. But you can find them at 8.5. You can find them at 9 uh, on some of these early lines. TCU as a home dog catching almost 10 points in a conference game. And Texas Tech has not been all that great against the spread. Uh, something you and I were talking about off the air is... You know, as we've mentioned before, sometimes you go on a nice uh, a nice run in March, and then for the next couple of years, you're kind of overvalued and have a bad ATS record. I think we mentioned that with Loyola a few episodes ago. Same is the case for Chris Beard. They are, uh, you know, noticeably below 500 uh, against the spread this year. So I kind of like TCU. I don't think they're going to win. They are not better than Texas Tech. But I like them as a home dog catching almost 10 points. TCU loses Monday night but does cover the spread. The third piece that I mentioned in the open of conversation that I think we should have after those rankings from Saturday, overvalued, undervalued. We're going to mostly focus on, on basketball on the court, not necessarily betting here. I'm sure that will come into play a little bit, but I'm glad you you led me into Texas Tech there from purely a basketball standpoint even though from a betting standpoint they've been well pure shit against the spread i just looked before the before the pod we had seven and 13 this year against the spread i think last year they were like 14 and 17 so from a betting standpoint texas tech have been, has been extremely overvalued something that you've talked about and you just mentioned coming off that final four run everybody loves chris beard everybody loves the direction of that program extremely overvalued in the books on the court i still think texas tech is very undervalued I, I like that their metrics aren't the best, and they might kind of get a lower seed than what I really think that they probably should. I love they lost to Baylor by, I think it was eight, when they didn't even play that well in that game. I don't know if this is just a feeling thing for me, if there's anything actually behind it. I like when a team loses to another good team in a game that they didn't play well. So in this game, Texas Tech, yeah, they lost by eight, just pulled it up. Texas Tech didn't play that well in that game, but they only lost to... 
Baylor, who I think is the best team in college basketball by eight points. This is something that Kansas says I've watched them a lot over the last 15 years. They do repeatedly. Well, they'll lose these close games to teams that are worse than them, but they won't play that well, so it doesn't bother me at all because I know what the potential is here for Texas Tech. I think it's some of it is in that game particular is just Baylor being good, Baylor being balanced on both ends. We were just talking about Oklahoma coming uh, into the show, how they don't do anything that great, but they don't do anything poorly. Baylor does nothing poorly. They force turnovers, they force bad shots. So some of that in that game, that Texas Tech game, was just Baylor being good and outplaying Texas Tech. But Texas Tech also just didn't play well in that game. I think Texas Tech is extremely undervalued. Do you think they're the most undervalued team or underappreciated team in the Big 12? I think they're appropriately appreciated in the Big 12. Uh, I think- is there even an undervalued team? I think Texas Tech is the only undervalued team in the Big 12. Is there another one that even sits close to them? Because I think people generally across the country are aware of what West Virginia has done because Bob Huggins, I think, gets a pretty good amount of credit. They're aware that Texas is finally good. Especially this year. The it, It's become a, kind of almost difficult to watch West Virginia games this year because every game becomes Bob Huggins is just overdue for the Hall After Sheboy transferred, that job he did. I mean, and all of that's true. It's just hearing it three times a week for two hours a, a, a spot is, you know, it's it's a little much. Uh, I, I agree. I think people generally know West Virginia basketball is good. Uh, I, I think people are still surprised. Like they, I, I think a surprising amount of people don't know that Jerry West played there. But I think in general, people know uh, what's going on in Morgantown. I think Texas, especially early on, it was like, is this the year of Shaka finally has uh, has Texas competing to go to the Final Four? And look, it's a new haircut. Like that was that was most of November, right? Uh, Kansas, I, th- I mean, I get that they're, you know, they're, they're a little down this year from what they normally are, but like everybody knows what's going on with Kansas. I actually might argue it's Long Kruger. Uh, I-, I think people constantly sleep on the job that Long Kruger does. If you're listing out the basketball jobs in the Big 12, I don't think Oklahoma's in the top five. And Long Kruger, I mean, yes, occasionally there are some down years. But he does a pretty good job with ingredients that are nothing really to lose your mind about. I would argue him over Tech because I do think there's a there's a sense of respect for Beard and what's going on at, at Tech, both in the Big Twelve and kind of nationally now. You don't think Oklahoma is a top really? Is that I'm something not, you just I'm said sure. that you haven't really thought about? I or... would rather be Baylor. I would rather be Kansas. I think like short term right now, I'd probably rather be tech. I think I'd rather be West Virginia. I think, I mean, in terms of purely a job though, like if that, if every job was wiped out and all these big 12 jobs open, I think Oklahoma is probably four or five, right? Maybe, maybe they're five, but that's, I, that's, I, I mean, I, that's I one your place point. away from the bottom half of the big 12. Right. <laughs> I, so. I see. Yeah. I, I see your point because I think that, when like Blake Griffin was there and even you go to like Willie Warren, they had some studs that were there. And I think that I think when Jeff Capel kind of fizzled out, I think everyone thought like he made Oklahoma bad. No, Oklahoma's been bad slash mediocre for a really long time. Just because they were good and he made them good and then they weren't good doesn't mean that Oklahoma should be good. 
And I think that where Lon Kruger has had them, that's kind of where Oklahoma has lived for a very long time, plus one level. So I don't know if it makes them undervalued this year. I think they might have undervalued potential, like an Oklahoma State, who I think is capable of beating just about anybody. I mean, if, if Cade Cunningham gets a little bit of help, I think Oklahoma State, their potential is probably undervalued. But in terms of pure undervalued teams, I still think it's Texas Tech in the Big 12. Anybody else across college basketball? Um, I mean, that's a that's a big list. <laughs> We're opening it up to all of college basketball. So how do you basketball. feel about the A-Sun? Well, how much time do you have? The Metro Atlantic Conference. How are you feeling about them? I watch an embarrassing amount of Metro Atlantic basketball. I, I'm, I'm not afraid to tell you. Like, I'm firing up, like, St. Peter's Niagara on a Friday night. Like, I'm not doing anything else. What channel are, Like, what channel is St. Peter's even on? Uh, it's it's deep in the 800s. <laughs> How much high point basketball have you watched this year? High point? Uh, I think I watched like five minutes of one game a month ago. Maybe a little high point Longwood? I think it might have been Radford. Overrated or overvalued teams? Going to Texas, I'm just not there yet on Texas. I was impressed what they did. They're better than they have been. They're more complete. They have like some sort of identity. When I've watched Texas over the last, what, Shock has been there for now, is this his sixth year, seventh year? He's getting up there, right? He's definitely been out of uh, my city for a while at this point. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it feels like they finally have an identity to their, to their team this year. After so many of those years, you're watching them saying, what are they attempting to do? What is their goal here? I'm not sure if the strong start, like after the strong start, they kind of become, hey, look, Shock is finally good kind of a favorite of betters, favorite of people that might have watched a game or two early, and then they'll see Texas as a three or four seed come the tournament, and they'll say, hey, Texas is finally good this year. But they seem ripe for like a 13-4 upset. Maybe get Belmont in there, Toledo, UNC, Greensboro. I'm just not there on Texas. I'm not there on Villanova. Again, purely from a basketball standpoint, not from a betting standpoint. Like what has, I'm guessing you don't have Villanova's schedule memorized, but on the court, what has Villanova done? And we just saw them get blasted by Creighton on, was it, Saturday afternoon? I mean, I, I'm not asking you specifically, but, like, show me where Villanova has shown us that there are two or three or a four seed. I mean, talk about a team that is benefiting from what they did two, three, four years ago. Because this Villanova, like, they're not a bad team, but this is not a good Villanova team. They don't have the resume. They don't have anything on the court that tells me that they should be sitting here in the conversation for a two or a three or a four seed. Could they play up to that level in the tournament? Sure. I trust Jay Wright a hell of a lot, as much as any coach in the country. But they're at no point this year, and what I've seen from Villanova, they've shown me nothing to say that they're a two or a three or a four seed. Were you not impressed by their uh, 87-53 win over Hartford College at a neutral site? Where was that game played? Uh, I'm on Ken Palm and all it says is neutral, so I can't really tell you. If it was west of the Mississippi, I will be on board with that because of the travel. <laughs> uh, I think the Big East as a whole is not having like Extremely its best year. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's, I don't think it's bad. I don't think it's having a bad but year. But it's not one of it's those just an eight, eh. it's not one of those eight, nine deep years where we're talking about like Butler, Providence, Connecticut, right. Xavier. Like we're talking about all of these teams saying if they get into the tournament. When I do my bracketology, I think I have Villanova, Creighton, and I have a pull up Xavier, 
and then Seton Hall should be in the mix, right? Yeah, UConn and then Seton Hall are in that mix. I I think I had Seton Hall out this week, maybe, or maybe they were in the play-in game. But that's really it. I mean, beyond that, like St. John's, maybe they could squeak in. They haven't been bad in conference play. Providence isn't getting in. Butler's not getting in. Georgetown isn't doing shit until they get rid of Patrick Ewing. Tough to watch. I haven't watched a single Butler game this year. Marquette's not getting in. DePaul's not getting. I mean, I can't remember a time when the Big East, in this modern day of a Big East, not pre-realignment Big East, where they've had this many you're not getting in teams. Good call on the Big. I've never really thought about them being that overvalued as a conference this year. I think you're spot on with that. Yeah, and and it's. I think it's a. It's a problem. It's a rich man's problem, right? Because the last. The last few seasons, they they've been kind of like what I think the the American football wants to be, where people kind of collectively look around and go, you know what? I get that this is not the Big East of yore, but like the Big East is a pretty great basketball conference. They've got some legit contenders at the top. They've got some real depth. There's not a lot of walkovers, and it's just kind of an eh year this year. And I think relative to where they've been the last five years, it just feels a little different. We were going to get into mid-major stuff, but I don't want to rush that conversation. I want to end it here. I have a just a brutally hard trivia question for you. I want to talk about blowout losses to close the show here for a f- few minutes. The net supposedly doesn't factor blowout loss into the equation. I think the point differential is capped at 10 points per game, which is just asinine in itself. But as I was going through resumes last week before dropping my last bracketology on uh, Thursday, Something that I hadn't previously noticed were so many blowout losses from these seeds that were top three, top four, top five seeds. So like in like that range of top 10 to top 20 teams in my rankings. And after the committee dropped their rankings on Saturday, I went back because I was curious to see which of their top 15s had a blowout loss. And I wanted to add some historical context for national champions. I wasn't going to write about this, but I just wanted to get it off my chest here because this is really cool. The number 18 kept coming up for me. It was a frequent margin of victory this year and in history, so I just picked 18 and ran with it. So most national champions, they lose a game by at least 10 points during the regular season. Not not some. like A, a majority of national champions will lose a game by at least 10 points. But in the last 25 years, only three teams have lost a game by 18 or more points and gone on to win the national championship. The three of the last 25 national champions... You know basketball as well as anybody I know, but this would be a crazy hard trivia question for you. Any idea on those three teams? You said the last 25 years? 25 years of national champions. Three teams with an 18-point loss in the regular season or conference tournament before winning the national championship. Any idea on those teams without looking? Um, 11 UConn? Yep. That was the team that got blasted by Louisville in the, okay, in the biggest tournament. Yep. Yep. That's uh well not in the biggest tournament. They won the biggest tournament. But um, oh, right, right. Yeah. At some point they would have gotten blasted. Right. Yeah. Um I like that I'm correcting you in the middle of your own trivia question. Yeah, thank um you. how about the Carmelo Syracuse teams? Nope. I don't think you're gonna get the other two Team? teams because I think generally if you would have asked me this, I would have thought who are the worst teams like who are the worst teams yeah to win? that's the, well I, I that's one way i think you could attack it and then another way is what teams were were centered around one dominant player so if they have a bad night things could fall apart which is why i went to carmelo anthony's syracuse team uh yeah just just give them to me 
Now I'm wrong Freshman on 2011. Lane. I don't know why I pull up 2011 UConn. I'll have to go back and tweet this or correct it next episode. They did not have an 18-point loss. They're one of those UConn Is this good podcasting there. right now? This is great podcast, especially when we get the information wrong. 2016 Villanova and 2002 Maryland. I got to go back on that UConn one, but I'm positive on 2016 and, and, tw- and 2002 Maryland. The teams with an 18-point loss this year. This is how many we have. Michigan, Virginia, Missouri, Alabama, Oklahoma, and Tennessee. So six of the committee's top 16 teams have an 18-point loss this year. And I get that some of these losses are different. I mean, talk about variables. Some were against better teams and worse teams. Early in the season, Virginia was just slaughtered by Gonzaga. Yeah, they're uh, much Alabama. better now than they were, you know, two exactly, months ago. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Alabama was blown out by Stanford really early, really early. I don't know that I care that much about this. I'm intrigued by the history of it. Three of the last 25 national champions had an 18-point loss. I think only five or six others had a loss of more than 15 points. That's enough sample size for me to be intrigued. But I think it's case by case. Like you said, in a vacuum, do I think Virginia is a better team now than two months ago? Of course I do. But they're still a worse team than Gonzaga by a mile. If Gonzaga played the other, you know, 340 whatever teams this season, they're probably beating 300 of them by 18 points. Like I care more about Tennessee losing to Florida by I think it was 25 or 26, but I also don't see Tennessee as a national championship contender. So I care about that Florida game and that it showed us something about Tennessee, but I don't care that much because I'm not sure Tennessee is actually a national championship contender. Do you even care at all about this stat? Do you think it's relevant? In saying that, wow, if you're losing this many by this many points, you're not going to win a national championship, or it's just the game itself tells you something about that team. See what I'm asking you? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, it's an interesting historical asterisk. I don't know how how good it is as as a predictive element. Yeah, uh, but it's an interesting thought that I, I would say where the value is is that if you are on most years, most of the time, if you're a national championship caliber team. You shouldn't lose to anybody by 20 points, you know? Right. You, even even on your bad nights, you're still kind of sort of in it. You're, right. you, you, don't, you have a high enough floor that that's never going to happen to you. There are some exceptions, so I, I get why, you know, Gary Williams all of a sudden has a blowout and a national championship on his on his resume. Uh, that, that, that does make sense to me. But overall, I, I think it makes sense, but I, I don't know how valuable it would be as a, uh, as a benchmark element. 2013-2014 was the UConn team. That's the oh, team that, that lost UConn, to that, Okay, that makes more yeah. sense. That makes a lot yeah. more sense. Because they that was when they're in the American. They lost to Louisville in the American tournament, but the season finale, this is where I was wrong, the regular season finale, they lost by 33 at Louisville. Yeah, well, that, that then, UConn team was one that definitely was not on people's radars. Right. It? Yeah. That was the Kentucky game. They didn't score more than 63 points in their final three games. Had their opponents to 54, 53, and 54. All right, we'll be back on Thursday. We should have a couple of guests for you on Thursday. Two guests. Right away on Thursday morning on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, everywhere podcasts are available. Chase is fired up about it. And then we'll be back next Monday on High Motor by BetMGM. Thank you for dropping by and listening to High Motor by BetMGM. I saw a friend today. It had been a while. And we forgot each other's names But it didn't matter Cause deep inside The feeling still remained the same We talked of knowing one Before you've met And how you feel more than you see And other worlds that lie in spaces